Well, welcome back, everyone, as we continue our discussion of the church's most misunderstood word, the word church. At least in my opinion, that's the most misunderstood word. And it's also the most emotionally loaded. And it's also got some built-in confusion in the way it's translated in our Bibles. Now, it's very important that before you watch this second part of my discussion of the word church, that you watch part one. It's imperative that you watch that first because this teaching continues where that one left off. And we will be referring to things that we discussed in that first episode. So go back and listen to episode one before you uh, listen to this one. Now, in episode one, we discussed three questions about the word C-H-U-R-C-H and the Hebrew and Greek words that stand behind this word that is translated, often mistranslated, as church, C-H-U-R-C-H. So in this episode, episode two, we continue, and we want to answer the question, are there other Hebrew words or Greek words that are translated church? And the answer is, yes, there is another Hebrew word, but no, there is not another Greek word. Ekklesia is the single Greek word that is translated church in our English New Testaments. But in Hebrew, there is a second word that is almost the same as the word kahal that we looked at in episode one. And the second word is the word edah, edah. Edah comes from the Hebrew word, word root, aid, which means testimonies or testimony. Um, you will read in the Psalms where, where David in Psalm 19, Psalm 119, he often refers to how he loves and he, he studies God's edut, testimonies, which is a plural of the word aid, testimony. Now, what is the difference between kahal and edah? Uh, they're almost the same, but you can think of it this way. If you take some color, say the color red, you can have two shades of the same color, and you call both of them red, but you can see one shade is a little different from the other. And the same is true with these two words. Kahal and edah are used almost interchangeably, but they have slightly different shadings. You can think of it this way. Kahal has to do with the fact that people are gathering, that they are called together, they're called apart from the things around them, and they're convening. But Edah has the shading of telling us what they're convening for. They have a testimony. They are either about to experience something or have experienced something around which they congregate. In fact, if we look at Exodus chapter 12, this is a discussion where God is giving Moses instructions for the Passover lamb. He says here in Exodus 12, verse 3, Tell the Adah of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then we skip on to verse 6. It says, And you shall keep it, the lamb, until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole kahal of the Adah of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Here we see the two words used together in the same sentence. So the whole gathering of the people 
uh, of the Edah, of the people who have a shared testimony. And you think of the things that Israel had experienced over their, their many years in Egypt, especially over the previous year with all the plagues and, and God's manifestation of himself over the, and his power over the gods of Egypt. And they're about to experience a powerful testimony together when they take this lamb and they put its blood on the doorpost of their homes and, and they eat the body of the lamb in the morning. They are thrust out of Egypt. They go and across the Red Sea. They, they go to Mount Sinai. Amazing things happen. So the Kahal becomes an Edah. The people who are gods were gathered together. Now they have something that tightens them together as a group even more. They have a, a testimony, an aid. Now, if we look at these two words, kahal and edah, if you recall, kahal was used 162 times in the Hebrew Bible. And kahal is an exact Hebrew equivalent of the word ekklesia, the Greek word that most of the time is translated church. But edah is used 172 times. It's used even more. So why didn't I start with edah? Why did I start with kahal instead? Because kahal is the exact equivalent of ekklesia. Edah is almost an exact equivalent. So I held it off to later. But in total, we have 334 occurrences of Hebrew words that should be translated C-H-U-R-C-H if our translations would be consistent. But ekklesia, the Greek word we translate church most of the time, occurs only 115 times, uh, just uh, under a third as many times as these two Hebrew words together. Now, this is a very important question. If the church began in Genesis, and we saw in the first episode three places where the word kahal is used. If the church began in Genesis, why is its foundation not mentioned until Matthew? And this is a verse you may have been thinking about during the first episode and is still in your mind, so let's address it now. I once asked a a Bible class, a high school Bible class I taught years ago. I, and I, it was a little bit of a trick question, but I told them, um, your assignment is to find the very first place the church is mentioned in the Bible. And I knew what they would come up with. They would all come up with Matthew 16, 18. And it is the first place we find the word C-H-U-R-C-H in our English translations. But it's about the... Um, 288th time that the word church should be appearing in our Bibles. So they came back with Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, and Yeshua is speaking here, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. That is the Greek word we usually translate as church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So again, the question is this. If the church, and if we're going to understand it as the, the body of people who follow God, who are sold out to God, if it first appears way back in Genesis, 
why does its foundation not appear until now? And there's a great answer to this question. It's a good question, and there's a good answer the Bible provides. I want you to think about the tabernacle. You remember reading about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, and it's given in great detail. It's discussed also in Leviticus and in Numbers. We see the details gone over again. And um, it's one of the major themes of the scripture. But I want you to think about something. This tabernacle, which is God's home in the wilderness with his people. It's God's home as he crosses over the Jordan with them into the land of Israel. It's his home for many years until finally a foundation is found for it. Because the tabernacle had no foundation. It had posts and curtains and walls and a, and a roof, but there was no floor. When you looked down, you saw dirt. There was no foundation under the tabernacle. But when David purchased that threshing floor from the Jebusite there in Jerusalem, the threshing floor that would then become the Temple Mount, the location where David's son Solomon would build the first temple, it wasn't until then that the tabernacle, which had the Ark of the Covenant and the, the golden incense altar and, and the, the laver and the, the menorah and the table of showbread, all these things, they did not have a foundation until that moment when Solomon built the temple. Now, with any other building, you build the foundation first and then you build the building. But here it's backwards. The building was first, and then the foundation. You see, God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. And God has always dwelt with people who loved him and put their faith in him and have followed his ways and embraced him as their God. But when Messiah came, and when Peter confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then Yeshua says, ah, now, that's the foundation upon which I'm going to build my ecclesia. This is the foundation upon which my people will rest. God has always had a covenant people, but Messiah is the foundation. And when he appeared, and as is described in the Gospels, then the people of God and the house of God found the rock. Yeshua is the rock. And he is the cornerstone. And it's Peter's confession of this reality that he calls the rock. And up on that rock, he would build his ecclesia. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And then let's go to our sixth and final question. Did the early Christians go to church? Well... If you've been paying attention, a church isn't a place you go to. A church is not a building. A building is a building. I know that near me there's a, an old church building that stood there for many years, well over 100 years. And when the people who gathered there, they either moved out or they built a, a new building somewhere else, but they de decommissioned this building. And even though it's got a steeple on it, it looks like your traditional American church building, uh, they sold it. 
and there's a, uh, a Jewish gentleman, a very creative artist and a uh, entrepreneur who bought the building. And then he, uh, he painted it purple. And um, he has a store in there that's got all these very strange, bizarre things. And on the top, over the door, he, he, he has the sign, the Church of Odd, O-D-D. And uh, which I thought was hilarious, and it's quite a place to visit. But, uh, oh, the, out, the uproar by some people. <gasps> That's a church. You can't do that to a church. This is a church. And I'm thinking, did they learn nothing in church? A church isn't a building. A church is people. Um, we're the people. It reminds me of another story that happened uh, many years ago. Um, after a service, there were, there were some children running around the sanctuary and chewing gum. And one of the little old ladies got very distraught about this and went to the pastor and says, Pastor, Pastor, don't you realize that these, that, uh, these children are chewing gum in the church? And the pastor looked around and says, no, ma'am says the churches are chewing gum. In other words, she, he realized that the true sanctuary is the people, not brick and mortar, not a building. With that said, I think it's wonderful when, when uh, places of worship are built beautifully. If it's, if it's uh, not causing a hardship to the people who build it, make them beautiful, make them inspiring, that's fine. You can also meet in your closet. You can meet in a basement. You can meet in a garage. You can meet outside and meet in a, a park and still be God's church, God's ecclesia, his kahal, his gathered people. It doesn't make any difference what walls you have around you. But back to our question. Did the early Christians go to church? Let me show you a, an interesting verse that is misquoted or I should say mistranslated in nearly every English translation I see, except for a couple. James 2.2 2 says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes in, you can go on and read the passage, but you're probably familiar with it. And it's a passage that says, Don't treat people... Uh, with don't give more attention to people who are wealthy and well-dressed and then kind of shun the person who comes in who's poor and isn't very well-dressed. But the word here, the key word is the word assembly. Now, it's not the word ecclesia, not the word church. You don't go into a church. It's not a building. But here it's talking about the word synagogue, which is our word synagogue. Now, what's interesting is that Almost everywhere that the word synagogue is found in the Greek scriptures, it is translated synagogue. Synagogue, which is a place where Jewish people gather to convene their services and their times of prayer. But this is the one place, the single place, in the English translation of the New Testament where synagogue is translated other than synagogue. Why? Because according to King James, Christians do not go to synagogue. 
Jews go to synagogue, and we are not Jews. We have nothing to do with the Jews. And what I find sad to this day is that modern translators who know good and well that this word is synagogue, and they probably know that the early believers did go to synagogues. Just read Acts 15, and you'll find James and the Council of Jerusalem encouraging the Gentile believers to go to the synagogues in their city so they could hear the Torah read on the Sabbath. They did go to synagogues. Where else did you go to learn God's Word? No one owned a Bible. There were no printing presses. To own a, a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures was, was crazy expensive, well beyond the capacity of, of most people to afford. So, if you wanted to hear God's Word, you had to hear it read aloud, and the place you went for that was to the synagogue, where they would have a Torah scroll, and they could read the Scriptures to you. So the accurate translation of this verse is this. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your synagogue. I hope you make that correction in your translation because it's a correction that really does need to be made. And so many times Christian biases against the Jewish people arise not out of the scriptures but out of subpar translations of the scriptures. And remember, our translations are approximations of God's Word, and some are much better than others. And remember this, that every translation is in itself a commentary. So you need to know the source, the theology, of the person who's doing the translating or the group who's doing the translating. Because there are some very misleading translations out there. We need to be very cautious concerning them. So, I hope that this series, pardon my jargon, will help remedy the situation. Because so many of the terms that we use in our faith communities are terms we use because that's how our faith tradition has used them and we've inherited them, and we just use them as our parents and grandparents have used them. But I'm challenging you to go back, and let's look at the roots, and let's get clarity. And, uh, I, and let's find the words, the English words, that best communicate the biblical concepts that lie behind the jargon that we are so used to using. And I hope that as we do this, we'll find that our connection with people in the world around us becomes so much clearer, so much more effective. And we won't put a wall of, 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 of jargon and terminology that will be a barrier to our communication with others. But we can communicate God's truth clearly and precisely with love and with light and without any confusion at all. That's my hope for this series. So I look forward to meeting back with you again as we continue our discussions in Pardon my jargon, correcting religious lingo. And uh, I also encourage you to look at the other series we have under our Torah Today Ministries banner. So thank you for listening. Click the button below to subscribe and be sure to send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you. God bless and Shalom. 
Enough said.